close a, the, our series uh, called Life Verse. And we've done this thing for, uh, this is our fifth week, and some of you were wondering where I had gone, I had heard, because uh, I have not preached any in the month of June. I, I took the whole month of June off from preaching, uh, but it doesn't mean I wasn't around. We took some vacation, had some fun, and uh, are hosting folks, but uh, in general, I wanted to say thank you, A, for being a church that uh, responds well to a multitude of voices. Uh, one of the things that drew us to this place um, was that there were a plurality of leadership in place. That this is not a church built on a singular person or a singular pastor or because we like the preacher, we come to this place. My, my hope and my heart for covenant uh, for today and for 20 years from now is this will always be a place where community is the draw and that multiple voices have wisdom to uh, dispense. And so, A, yes, when I take some uh, time off from preaching, there is a, 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 an aspect of that that's for me to be uh, fresh and to be uh, dur- uh, like a durative season so that um, three years from now, it's not the 51-week-a-year preacher who's burned out and everybody's forming a search committee because that's not what anybody wants. What, what we aim for, so yeah, there's a, a rhythm of rest for me and we'll get into that and as, as we go through the years together, you'll be like, oh, it's June. We get to hear other people. Thank God we're getting tired of him. Um, the more important thing, I think, that I want to make sure that is clearly communicated so that everybody gets it over and over and over again is part of the joy for me in sitting in the front row or being in one of your kids' classrooms. Part of the joy for me is that we get to hear a different voice of wisdom and a different perspective on the scripture and a different heartbeat and life coming through because that is the, the richness of our community is that we have a richness of voices to be heard. And so Tim and Craig and Terrence and Ken filled in incredibly. I found my own spiritual walk enriched by this month And I hope you did too. And so as we do this year over year, and as we do this season over season, when when we have uh, people up here, it's not because I wouldn't rather preach every single week because I would. And if you ask my wife for the weeks I don't preach here, I end up preaching at home and she gets pretty sick of it. It's because that we have so much wealth of wisdom and it would only be right to share that broadly. And so thank you for being a part of a community where that's understood and loved and cherished. And uh, I appreciate it deeply. All of that said, we are closing our Life First series today, and I am closing it with uh, my Life First. I actually didn't have a Life First. Maybe I still don't. Uh, In a sense, when we say Life First, some people have one that you go, hey, this was the verse that changed my life, and that's in my front pocket, and I got it all the time. For me, I think it's more of a back pocket thing. It's the sort of thing that I have it when I need it, And it's there to to shape and remind me. It's there to correct and steer me as we go. And so that's what mine is going to more look like. It's a a quiet influence in my life. It's this this thing that kind of runs in the background of my head all the time. My uh, life verse then for the the purpose of this series is Amos 5.24. It says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So we're going to come back to that. But let's first grab some context. Life, as I observe it, one of our chief aims in life is to dull pain. This is one of our chief human aims in life is to dull pain. I remember when uh, Brixton, our now five-year-old, was uh, about to be born, we can say, we were uh, sitting in our living room and my my wife and I were, she was, you know, 14 months pregnant and we were just kind of waiting it's 10 p.m., and, and I, she gripped the chair really hard. I, I just watched her, and she was just gripping the chair. We're watching a Spurs game. And I'm like, I, th- this doesn't look right. 
and we're, you know, we're ready to have this baby, I think. So I went quietly to the uh, bedroom, and I got our little uh, pregnancy bag together, and I went and sat it by the front door really quietly. I sat back down and watching the game, and then she grips it again, and I'm, I'm timing the grips. It's like every three minutes or so, guys. Finally, you know, she throws the phone across the room, and, a, and a, the deep pain starts coming. She goes, put the bag together. We got to go. And I was like, the bag is together. We're ready to go. And I called this guy and he's coming over because Bella's sleeping in the other room and don't worry about it and just get in the car. So we get in the car and she was ready. You know, she was ready to have this baby. And I think her body was more ready than even we knew because on the way, it was about a 10, 12 minute drive to the hospital and it's the middle of the night. So there's no traffic. And so we're just flying. And, and she just starts like, she's howling in the car, yelling at people on the freeway, rolling the window and just screaming at the guy on the exit ramp that's going 55 in a 45, you know, like, hurry. And I'm looking at her like, oh, man. She goes, you know, she, she starts going like, we're not going to have a baby in the car, are we? We're not going to be those people. So we get to the hospital, and we're, we're pulling up to the gate, and it's one of these huge hospital complexes, and it's got uh, the, the gate has the, the arm thing, and you have to punch the, the little kiosk to get your ticket so that you can park somewhere. And the guy in front of us, he doesn't seem to understand that you have to punch the thing that says press here. And so he's just sitting at this arm and he, he can't seem to figure it out. And you see him messing and she's rolling down the window. Hurry up! And I'm thinking, like in my head, I'm thinking I, I could probably either jump the curb or I could probably just push him through the gate and we can figure it out later. Like, oh, sorry about that. He finally finds his way through. I pull into the little uh, drive through thing. And we just kind of roll her out and, and put her on one of those gurneys. And Steph gets on the thing, and they take her back. And I'm filling out paperwork, and I can hear her through the wall. The pain. The pain of this child that's coming. And it was uh, the moment of great relief when they got us into the room, and everybody's favorite person came into the room, the anesthesiologist. Oh, we love the anesthesiologist. Here's how much we love this anesthesiologist. How would you react if you were sitting down at dinner somewhere, just some casual place, and, and LeBron James came and sat at the table next to you? We went to dinner one night, three years later, and at the table next to us is the anesthesiologist, and we were like, it's him. <laughs> Should we say hi? Do you think, do you want to bother him? I don't want to bother him, but thank you so much. You, you really did an incredible job there with the epidural. It was so cool. You're so, and he was like, I do a hundred of those a day. This is really weird. And yet for like this subset of women in San Antonio, Texas, this guy is like the most incredible person on earth. He's the anesthesiologist. And it only hit me later. I recognized later uh, this kind of interesting uh, construction that had happened in our lives is that, that we dull the pain in order to bring kids into a world where we then teach them how to dull the pain. Like the first step of bringing a kid into the world for us was dulling the pain. I don't want to feel that. Look, I'm not a woman, so don't hear me saying that you shouldn't dull the pain. If any of the screaming, or in Steph's case, the octaves of singing from the wall across from me, if any of that was any indication of what she was feeling, I would have wanted two epidurals. Like, I don't care. Give me more. And yet, we dull the pain. Life then becomes this never-ceasing search to dull pain. The pain of broken lives, the pain of death or disease or starvation or war, these things that we know exist outside of our little middle America bubble. Like we know uh, 
intellectually, cognitively, we know that millions of people are starving in the world right now. We know that. But we, we don't want to think about that. We know that there's a crisis in Syria. We know that there is conflict in the world. We know that, that there's famine and disease. We know. But we don't want to think about that. We know that here in this region, there's kids waiting to be adopted. There's kids and, and families that are, are not just dysfunctional, but destructive. And they need families. And we have families. And we, we know that. But we don't want to think about that. A couple of years ago, the statistic was that Americans had spent $23 billion in over-the-counter pain relievers in one year. I'm not very good at math, but if you take $350 million and $23 billion and you, you put them together somehow, that's a lot of money per person on dulling the pain. We dull the pain with sports, television, celebrity, hobbies. We, we dull the pain with learning, with good things. We dull the pain with distraction and diversion. None of this is new, though. This is not a, an American issue. This is not a, a 2017 problem. This is... This is just humanity. This is what we do. The book of Amos was written some 2,800 years ago. 750 B.C., Amos is written, Amos writes, to a people, to a, a group that are at the peak of prosperity. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah are at the peak of prosperity, 750 B.C., and, and they are just ripe with greed, and they are self-consumed, and they're making their wealth at the expense of others, just like us, to which some will protest and say, wait, 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 I might not be solving the world's problems, but I'm not, I'm not getting fat and happy on, on oppression. That's not me, right? That's not, that's not happening in my house. We do what we can, but we can't do everything. To which I will give you a, a short assignment. This is going to require you to get to know your neighbor a little bit, and so I hope you showered this morning. Here's what I need you to do. Find a, a partner or somebody. I, can you look at your neighbor's tag on their shirt? Just, just check. I just want you to see where, the, where it was made. Just check your neighbor's tag. Anybody, anybody have a China? Anybody have China? Bangladesh represented in the house. Bangladesh is getting big. What about El Salvador? Any other, any South American countries? See? I got India. Anybody else have India with me? I got some India. Any others? What, what other ones? Vietnam? Sri Lanka? These are, the, all the countries we've named so far, these are really the bastions of wealth and democracy in our world, right? These are the places known for like, like workers' rights and, and high wages, right? N not really. Because I put my shirt on today and I didn't consider that there might be a nine-year-old girl in India making my shirt who may or may not be getting paid, who may or may not have a family, who may, who may or may not have, have anything of the things that I want for my almost nine-year-old girl. I don't consider that when I put my shirt on. I just put my shirt on. And actually, when I think about it, if I go shopping, I would rather have the shirt based on my behavior 
that was made by an even younger kid for even less money because it charges me less. And so if I can have a shirt for $12 instead of 15 I don't consider why it's cheaper, do I? So is it possible that on some level, even we can admit that there is oppressive behavior even in our own lives? That there are ways we haven't even considered because we've dulled the pain as to the way that we walk through the world. So we come back to Amos. Chapter 5, verse 21. Verse 21 starts and says, I hate, I hate, 22, verse 21 says, I hate and I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, 22, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God, through Amos, is telling this culture, I hate and I despise your feast and your solemn assemblies. This is our solemn assembly. What's happening? God is telling the people that their offerings and their worship are worthless and even insulting, if not matched with lives that live out what we sing out. God is telling this people of incredible wealth that he's sick of it. He's sick of the show, and he's sick of the pretense, and he's sick of the hypocrisy of religion. And the thing that the people outside of the walls of this church would accuse us of, I'm not a Christian because of the hypocrisy we have to own. And say, I am a Christian, and there are places in my life where hypocrisy is rampant, and there are a lot of them I can't even see. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's a pretty line, isn't it? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If it sounds familiar, it's because the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King used it in his I Have a Dream speech. Dr. King stood up and said, I have a dream. He looked around and said, injustice plagues this land. And the people who would say nice things in that time made no effort to enact them by and large. Which made the push for civil rights necessary because those who said, well, I don't have a problem with it, but I'm not going to upset the apple cart, wasn't getting it done. And so Dr. King said, I have a dream. And we will not be satisfied until that dream is realized. We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness and never flowing stream. He said, I'm not satisfied until one day that justice would come, that one day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, I would not be satisfied until they'll be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. And he stands up and he uses the words of Amos to punctuate this, to say the dream for America for civil rights, was tied up in justice and righteousness. And the dream for us, as we take that forward, are we done with that? No. We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do in a lot of areas, and each of us is responsible for that. But then we have a larger thing at play. As followers of Christ, we're not only working on reconciliation in all those ways, we're working on reconciliation on an eternal level. 
And that starts with getting our own hearts in the right spot. That was a powerful moment in American history, and it's a moment that's still unfolding. And Dr. King's use of the verse is instructive to us. And yet, how does it apply to our lives? Two words make it matter, justice and righteousness. We've talked about this last fall, justice and righteousness. Justice, mishpat, this word means rectifying justice. So when he says, let justice roll down like waters, it's saying, justice, let rectifying justice, making wrong things right, let that roll down. Saying, look at a broken world and work to make it right. This is the justice we're talking about. It's a protection for the orphan who lives in a broken world under no fault of their own. Our job is to make that world right again. Orphans, widows, immigrants, poor, they need mishpat. They need rectifying justice. The world has dealt them a rotten hand, and they need help in making that hand right again. And then righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. Righteousness, tzedakah, the word is primary justice. Righteousness, despite our emphasis on behavior, is fundamentally a relational term. Because we're Americans, we're going to break everything to a task orientation, and we're going to say, well, then what do I need to do to be called righteous? To which the Bible would say, it's not do, it's be. And righteousness is relational. Modern righteousness that we hold as as modern Christians is, is usually private. Sexual chastity, our prayer life, my Bible study, these are the things that that make me righteous if I do these certain things in my private life. Biblically, righteousness was was public. It was to be right with God and committed to making right with all. Relating to people with fairness, with generosity, with equity. A few years ago, we were at a theme park and I I, I bought one of those lemon uh, slushy things, like the lemonade slush, which when you're at a theme park is really reasonably priced at $11.50, you know? But it's 150 degrees in San Antonio, and so we're at the theme park, and the kids are thirsty, and I, I, I splurge for one of these things. And I, I know that I'm not being treated with righteousness and justice in this moment because the ice, the sugar, and the cup cost them about 40 cents, and it's 11.50 for me. And so I'm feeling a little um, righteous indignation, you might say. So I pay with my $20 bill, and back I get my change. Math majors, 8.50. I look at my change, and she's giving me an extra five, thirteen fifty. That seems about right. I was overpriced to begin with. Maybe she's practicing righteousness and just doing it under the counter for me, you know? I'm looking, I'm walking away going, she gave me an extra five bucks, and I shouldn't have paid more than five bucks for that whole thing. She actually owes me three fifty more, but I'm not going to go tell her. And I stop. And I turn around, and I go, and I give her five dollars back. Why? Because righteousness is my relationship with her. And she's making eight twenty-five an hour. And if her till's five bucks short just one more day, maybe she doesn't have a job tomorrow. And so my job to, to relate rightly to the world, to relate rightly to her, to live righteousness, to have primary righteousness and justice active in my life is to walk back and hand her five dollars. And it disadvantages me five dollars, but it advantages her, she gets to keep her job. This is an example of this primary justice. Easy for me to do it with five. What would we do with a thousand or five thousand? To be rightly related to others means we are willing to disadvantage ourselves to the advantage of the community. The unjust are willing to disadvantage the community to the advantage of self. And so we, as the followers of Christ, called to this life, are then called to reverse that, to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of the community. It's like what you uh, buy airport food. It's price gouging. 
There's no tuna sandwich that should be $14. Bottle of water is $8.50. It's the airport. It's not fair. 15 feet outside the door, you can get everything there for $4 total. It's not right. It doesn't feel, there's a reason it feels wrong to you when you pay for food at the airport. It's not right. But there's nothing you can do about it. If we took where it hurts us and we put that outwards and we view the world with those eyes, where do we see injustice? And then we ask the question, if we live with primary justice, if we lived this way, rightly, then secondary justice wouldn't be needed. So when we quote Dr. King, when we quote the book of Amos, justice wouldn't have to roll down like waters if we lived out of the righteous and ever-flowing stream. There would be no need for a refreshing of justice if we lived righteous in the first place. When visitors come to your house, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we have a visitor or two that come to our house. What do you do right before visitors get to your house? You panic clean, right? You're shoving things in closets and stuff under the rug. And we have basements now. This is cool. Because what I learned is you open the basement door and you just push. And then you close it and just don't take anybody down there. But why, why do we do that? Why do we clean when people come over? Because it wasn't clean to begin with. So primary justice is the house is already clean and ready. We do the work in advance so that rectifying justice, panic cleaning, isn't necessary. And that's kind of the picture that we're looking at. God says, enough with the songs. Don't tell me one thing and act out another. Don't praise me for my goodness and oppress your brother. But the pain of all that, the pain, we say. We're all anesthesiologists. Anesthetics block communication. This is important. Anesthetics only block communication. They don't actually erase pain. They cut off your neurotransmitters from communicating pain to the receptors in your brain. That's what, that's what pain relievers do. It still hurts. You just can't feel it. And so when you take a pill and the headache goes away, the headache didn't go away. Your ability to feel it got dulled, but nothing more. When a patient's in the hospital after surgery and, and they give him really strong pain relief, do you think like the open wound on their body no longer hurts? No, they've just blocked the transmitter that allows it to communicate to the brain to say, hey, you have an open wound and it hurts. And so until that medicine wears off, we've blocked all communication. We've dulled the pain. And this is us. We anesthetize with distraction and diversion because if we stopped and we thought about it, it would hurt. Thinking about children that don't have families hurts. Thinking about poverty or teen pregnancy or the drug epidemic in our country or our county hurts. Zoom out globally, thinking about AIDS or hunger or disease or war, it hurts. Thinking about our friends or our neighbors that have no relationship to Jesus, that hurts. And the reality for us is that dulling the pain is not the same as healing the pain. And we can dull the pain all we want, but that's false healing. My mother would tell the story that when my sister passed away, culture rushed her grieving. Culture says we need to have a service. We need to have some people over. We need to pat you on the back when you cry. And then we need to move on with our lives. And what people, well-meaning people would say, is you just need to get back to your life. And in the busyness, 
pain will go away. And what she would say, and what many of you in this room would say, is the pain never goes away. And the culture's insistence that we push forward into greater busyness, that we push forward into one more thing to dull the pain of intense grief and mourning and loss, it's not healing anything. What my mom would tell you now is what she wished she could do is what the Jews would do back in biblical times is sit on a box in her house in sackcloth and ashes for a month or two. And just sit and just cry and just mourn. And she says, I wouldn't be healed any better with that, but I sure would be a whole lot better than, than where I was. With it's really nice to see you and we're sorry for your loss and back to everyone's lives. We know pain. We need healing. Luke chapter 4, verse 38. Jesus got up. He left the synagogue. He entered Simon's home. And Simon's mother-in-law was suffering. Jesus witnesses suffering. She's suffering from a high fever. And they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever. And it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. They brought them to Jesus, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons were also coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them even, he would not allow them to speak, because he knew they knew him to be the Christ. They called Jesus in because someone is sick. A high fever 2,000 years ago was a big problem. Jesus comes in, he doesn't distract them, he doesn't divert them, he heals them. He doesn't turn on Judge Duty or the NFL. He doesn't scroll through Facebook. He comes face to face with pain and deals with it. Which sounds really hard. Jesus says the same for you and I. We're brought before Jesus in our pain and our suffering. He looks us in the eyes. He doesn't divert. He doesn't distract. He deals with our pain. He deals with the pain by taking the weight of our sin on the cross. He takes the hard part of our pain and he takes the suffering that we were due and he takes it on for us. And he says, in my pain is your healing. Justice and righteousness are hard. There is a weight to be carried in considering the effects of our actions. We can imagine that our sin is hurtful. We can imagine that. I can imagine that my sin is hurtful. I can imagine that maybe my shirt, made in India, has some ripple effect. Varna, an agency that collects data and puts out surveys, they put this survey out every year about just general trends and demographics and Christianity and the rest of the world and, and what's been true for uh, way too long now. Is that virtually indistinguishable are uh, the rates of all the terrible things you would imagine all the, the tragedies that befall people, all the sin behavior, all the, the brokenness in families. You look at a divorce or you look at addiction, you look at all these things, and Christianity has no differentiation between their numbers and uh, the rest of the world's numbers. Divorce for the world, divorce for Christianity, same. Addiction for the world, addiction Christianity, same. All the way across. We have a, an ability to imagine that our sin is hurtful, but I'm afraid sometimes we don't actually realize the ripple effect of our unrighteousness. I've had more than one person in my office throughout the years that has come in and said, I, I have a problem with pornography. I don't act on anything. I'm not hurting anyone. To which I would say, 
that habit is participating in sex trafficking. And there's a girl in Romania that has now been kidnapped so that she can be forced into something for the consumption of someone without getting more detailed or graphic. That the participation in that marketplace in any way, shape, or form is the complicit participation in that girl's greatest nightmare. And as that sickness is manifest, and as that sickness grows in our society, we then have to face the reality that there's, there's a vulnerable kid in Toledo. A little boy, a little girl. There's a kid on the east side of Bowling Green that is at risk. To be scooped up, spit out. Because our behavior, our lives have a ripple effect. Can we imagine that our most innocuous moments of life have rippling impacts around the world? Every little thing, our primary justice, if we participate in a world with primary justice, it tips that scale back into the positive. It tips that scale back to grace. It tips the scale back to joy. Do you tip well? We talk about this often. You know, you know, tip based on the service. Tell the proper story for the person who gives you bad service. And don't tip so as to give them an extra dollar. Tip so as to build relationships so that maybe that person whose relationship at home is breaking down now has you as a lifeline to say, you know what, do you mind if we pray for you? Here's your tip, but can we pray for you before you? Sure. And now you know a name, and now you know a heart, and now you know a life, and now you know a story, and the whole trajectory of that changes. It isn't about the extra dollar on the bill. It's about buying the opportunity to say, I would like to pray for you. And you know what? In all the years, no one has ever turned me down. Not in a hospital room that I walked in on accident because I was in the wrong one. Uh, sorry, I was looking for someone else. And they were like, well, this is not someone else. And I go, okay, well, can I pray for you? No one's ever said no. Not a person at a restaurant, not a person at a bus stop. No one has ever said no. Do you look the vulnerable in the eyes when you see them? Do you look the poor in the eyes when you run across them? Do you look the eyes of the child in China that's making our shirt? Can you, can you get there? Seeking true healing is radically different than spending our lives dulling pain. It is harder. In orders of magnitude, it is harder. You say, I don't know if I could live this life thinking about all of that. And then we get a, a glimpse, a sliver of what Jesus went through for us. For me, my life verse is a daily challenge to avoid living as an anesthesiologist while a broken world lays dying. I am not wildly successful every day. I am not uh, out there making world-changing decisions with every moment of my life. It is often just as anesthetized as yours, if not more. But my verse in this back pocket says, don't forget. Don't forget that God does not want you on Sunday morning singing if your Monday morning is all about you. God wants all of you. And he wants your life to be reflected and displaying his grace. God says the world is broken. And so neglecting the poor and ignoring the hurting and living in relational carnage is not the way to worship me. The reality is you and I are the incarnation of the body of Christ. That Jesus left us, the church, to do his work. The hands and feet, that's us. 
you and I as healed people have a commission to go be healers. To seek out pain, not avoid, but to seek out pain. Jesus goes and seeks it. And he says, go and do likewise. And so our job is to seek out the pain. To live out of the overflow of his grace and extend beauty and justice to all in our path. Where is that overflow found? It always goes back to lives rooted deeply in Jesus. The anesthesiologist dulls the great physician Jesus heals. And so grace and hope are in his healing. John 1.16 would say from his fullness and grace upon grace is where we operate. Grace upon grace, richness upon richness, we have an ever-flowing stream in us. And it is upon us to dispense it to others. Dulled lives lack pain, that is true. But there is no depth. And the most meaningful moments of my life were not luxurious or comfortable or convenient. Go back through the most meaningful moments of your life. Not the easiest, but the most meaningful. We were missionaries in South Africa. A woman that uh, my wife would have called her best friend comes into our office. Her name was Beauty. So my daughter's name is Bella. And Beauty comes in and she has this look on her face and we knew We didn't know where she'd been. We didn't know what she was doing, but she came in with a look on her face and we knew. And collapsing in the doorway of our office. She can hardly speak and she barely mutters the words. She whispers the words, I am positive. She'd just gotten her AIDS test results. And in South Africa, in 2007, that was a death sentence. And this woman with four kids comes in, and she knows nowhere else to go, and her only words are, I am positive. Let justice roll like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So what was our response? I was paralyzed. Steph fought. For nine months, sometimes daily in the hospital, fighting for the right to get access to a pill that you and I as Americans would walk in to CVS and get easily. But for her, no. Steph gets thrown out of hospitals, fighting with nurses and doctors saying she will get medicine. Got her picture up on the wall, don't let her back in. And so nine months into our journey, we go, God, why did you bring us here? And we look back sometimes and go, beauty is still alive. Because Steph used her life, her why am I here God moment, to find somebody who couldn't fight for themselves and say, I will fight for you. And so while Steph is fighting in the hospital to get drugs, to get antiretroviral drugs, one pill to save a life, I'm now the proud parent of a five-year-old African girl. And I get her all day, and we bond. And as a result of that, God fills my heart for my own children. And God begins to bless us through this thing. And it wasn't about the blessing, it was about the opportunity that God put at our doorstep in a collapsing woman saying, I got a death sentence, and I don't know what to do. The most meaningful moments of our lives are rarely the luxurious and the convenient and the comfortable. 
you asked me what they were, I enjoyed laying on a beach in Jamaica. I don't look back and say I wouldn't give that up. I wouldn't give up being in my sister's hospital room. She breathes her last. As the Psalms are read out, a family embraces, people cry, and they don't know whether to be happy that she's healed and heaven bound or devastated and destroyed that she's gone. I wouldn't trade it. Because in that moment, I look over and there's a pastor. He's not saying anything. But his ministry of presence spoke volumes to me. That here were a people dealing with an injustice, a disease of no fault of their own. And he gave his life, he gave his days to see comfort and hope and peace brought. And I said, I will be like him. most meaningful things in our life are rarely the comfort and convenience. You have one life and there is a world of opportunity to use it well. And so the challenge today, my life verse challenges me every day is to fight for something that actually matters. We all have the option of a life epidural. Just take the needle, dull the pain. My verse says, may I never be caught in empty praise, but may my life be a torrential downpour, a roaring waterfall of justice, of mercy, and of love on those who need it most. And may my life reflect what Christ did for me and how I live for others. Let's pray. Father, your word is a challenge that I confess I am not up for most days. Your word is a challenge that uh, shouts me down from my corner of self, calls me back to a life that matters. Father, your word is a challenge to dispense with comfort and dispense with convenience when the opportunity arises to be grace and hope for someone in need. And so, Father, I pray that you would expose in my own life, for us as a community, but for me personally, you would show me oppression. You would show me ignorance, that you would show me places where I've not yet figured out what grace means. Expose them and convict my heart and bring me back. Father, for us as a community at large, we pray that you would forgive us when we fall short. But Father, that you would breathe new life daily into these tired lungs and these distracted lungs. Father, that you would give us the ability to live in such a way that this community takes notice. Not that the church might grow, but Father, that you might be glorified. Father, the day that we have done our job, the church will be empty and the community will be full. I pray that we would be those people that would carry justice and righteousness in our days, that would seek out meaning, that would seek out deep purpose. And that as a community, we would lean on each other so that none walk alone. 
Father, bond us in that. Give us that challenge. And as you do so, Father, dispense the hope and the joy of your son that we have victory and we have eternity. And so here we can spend our lives for something greater. Father, thank you for Jesus, his work on the cross, the way that he has dealt with us. God, thank you for the salvation we find in him, the deep joy we find in him. God, give us a moment of meaning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as a family, we participate in communion. It's our meal that Jesus left us. It's our way to share something as one, but to thank God for the gift. The gift of life and the gift of love and the gift of grace. So the gift of our salvation is in the bread, and we take the bread, which represents his body, and we dip it in the cup, which represents his blood, and we have a moment to take this meal of thankfulness. So whether you want to come down with your family and have a moment, whether you're here by